Hello, sports fans, and welcome to another edition of Yesterday Sports on the Sports History Network. And make sure to check out sportshistorynetwork.com slash giveaways. I have two signed books I'm giving away. One is titled No Nonsense Old School Weight Training, and the other is Reliving 1970s Old School Football. 1968, the Masters. Roberto Di Vicenzo, the reigning champion of the British Open, goes out and shoots a 7-under par 65 on the final day of the tournament, but signs an incorrect scorecard and his chance at glory. His chance to wear the green jacket vanishes, and an entire career, one in which he won 231 tournaments around the world, is stained by that one fateful error that, admittedly, was a flaw in his game. Next, on Sports Forgotten Heroes, the most remembered moment and forgotten career of Roberto DiVincenzo. This is Sports Forgotten Heroes, a tribute to the stars who shape the games we love to watch and the games we love to play. Stars who provided us with many thrills, but when their time was up, they faded away. We'll take a look back at their spectacular careers, their moments of fame, even if it was just for one season or just one game. And now, here's your host, Warren Rogan. Hello and welcome to Sports Forgotten Heroes. I am so excited to bring this episode to you for a few reasons. First, an old friend of mine and one of the most knowledgeable golf historians in the business will be joining us to talk about Roberto DiVincenzo, and that's Peter Kessler. Secondly, this is the 27th episode of Sports Forgotten Heroes, meaning this is the first podcast of our second year. So, thanks for tuning in. And if you've missed any editions of Sports Forgotten Heroes, remember, you can always download past episodes by visiting iTunes, Google Play, TuneIn, SportsFH.com, or Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts, or whenever you're ready to listen to Sports Forgotten Heroes, it's always available. And please spread the word. Let your friends, coworkers, and family know about the podcast. Give us a five-star rating. And I'd also love to hear about what you have to say. In fact, send in your comments by visiting sportsfh.com. Have an idea for a show? Have a question or a comment? Just visit sportsfh.com. Check out our page on Facebook and look for us on Twitter at SportsFHeroes. Today's Sports Forgotten Heroes podcast is sponsored by Audible. With Audible, you get a free audiobook download and a 30-day free trial at www.audibletrial.com backslash sportsfh. Over 180,000 titles to choose from for your iPhone, Android, Kindle, or MP3 player. Audible is a great way to show your support for Sports Forgotten Heroes and a terrific way to listen to your favorite books, especially when you're on the run. Give it a try free at www.audibletrial.com backslash sportsfh. All right, you know, I don't like to date each podcast, but in this instance, with the 2008 Masters teeing off later this week and it being the 50th anniversary of the horrific scoring error by Roberto DiVincenzo that cost him a chance to win the Masters, I thought this would be the perfect time to speak about this World Golf Hall of Fame inductee. DiVincenzo was an absolutely terrific golfer. 
He won the British Open in 1967. He won the first ever U.S. Senior Open, which was played at Winged Foot in 1980. And he also won a PGA Seniors Championship. Overall, he won 231 tournaments over a career that spanned decades. But, unfairly or not, it was one particular Sunday afternoon, April 14th, 1968 that defined the career of Roberto Di Vicenzo. It was that day in which he signed an incorrect scorecard. And what's even more amazing about that, at least to me, and something you're going to hear about in just a few moments, is the fact that Di Vicenzo never really took care to make sure the scorecard he signed at the end of each round was actually correct. He took it for granted and figured whomever he was playing with would never make such a mistake. And joining me now is longtime friend and someone who knows so much about golf and its history, Peter Kessler. Peter, welcome to Sports Forgotten Heroes. I tell you, it's so nice to hear your voice. I have such nice memories of us when we were a little bit younger and, you know, we were working together to try to put the Golf Channel on the map and... You you had to work your end, and I was working my end, and we both got it right, and you did a fantastic job there. And there's, you know, no denying the contribution that you made at the time. And uh, it was uh, it was a great joy, you know, to have you in the building and to know what you're working on, and to know that you did it so well. So I'm, um, and you and I have been friends a long time, and so I'm delighted to be with you. Awesome, Peter. Thank you so much for the compliment, and you know. Obviously, it was great working with you, and I'm so glad we've hooked back up to talk about Roberto Di Vicenzo, especially this being the 50th anniversary, if you want to call it an anniversary, of one of the most, I think, bizarre incidents in the history of golf, maybe even in the history of sports, the anniversary of his scorecard error that led to Bob Golby winning the Masters. Would you please explain what happened? Well, first of all, Roberto had a history of not really checking his scorecard very carefully when it was given to him at the end of the round by the other fellow in his group who was keeping his card. Because what happens is you keep the other fellow's card, then you exchange cards and you check hole by hole to make sure that the other guy has gotten it right. And it's very easy to make mistakes because the other player who's keeping your card is thinking about his game and his day and what's going on with him and, and is prone or likely to be in a situation where you could get sloppy and, and not get the number right. And that's why you check the other's card hole by hole. So Roberto had a history of not doing that very much, very well. And you have to remember the two that, you know, Roberto won 231 tournaments, but mm-hmm. about 200 of them really took place in Argentina and South America. And <laughs> the system was a little bit more relaxed there. And, you know, and it was a lot more informal and there was no PGA tour. And a lot, this was a lot of the seat of the pants sort of stuff. And, you know, so if you made a mistake, it could fix it. I mean, it just, there wasn't a strict adherence to the rules of golf. So he was used to a rather casual atmosphere at when it came to score assigning a scorecard. Now, on the Saturday of the 68 Masters, most people 
have forgotten or weren't aware that Golby and DiVincenzo actually played together the day before. Hmm. And when the round finished and Bob handed Roberto the scorecard that he kept for Roberto, Bob told me later, he said, it's the fastest he ever saw anybody look at a card. He said he didn't really look at it. He just signed it and threw it back across the table. And Bob said, I was just absolutely so surprised that here we are at a major championship, you know, and I could have made a mistake and he's just taking everything for granted and signed the card. So that was on the Saturday. So here we come to Sunday and Roberto birdies the 17th hole with a birdie three, and then he bogeys the 18th hole. And that gave him a 65. So when Tommy Aaron, who kept his card, who he played with on the Sunday, handed Roberto the card, he didn't notice that Tommy had written down a par four on 17 instead of the birdie three that Roberto actually made. And Roberto told me later, I said, when you looked at the card, when you looked at the card and Tommy handed it to you, I said, did you look at it? Did you, did you pay attention to it? Was, was there something on there that, that transfixed you for the moment that kept you from checking the scores carefully? And he said, yes. He said, because I bogeyed 18. And he said, if I don't bogey 18, I win the tournament outright. There mm-hmm. isn't going to be a playoff. And he said, so when I looked at the card, all I saw was the bogey on 18, and I didn't look at any other hole. Wow. And of course, the rules of golf, you know, are such that if you sign for a higher score, you're stuck with it. And if you sign for a lower score, you're out of the golf tournament. You're disqualified. It's right. not even a, a question of penalty strokes. You've signed for an incorrect card too low. You're gone. So he had to live with the higher score of the 66. And of course, you know, not being particularly fluent in English, he sat there and said, what a stupid I am. And that became a very famous line. And funnily enough, you know, I talked to Roberto in 2000, 2001 informally and I said to him, did you make more money because you signed the wrong card than if you had won the Masters? And he said, actually, that's true. He said, I, I've not been asked that before. He said, but he said, I actually was able to, in, um, par- paraphrasing now, I was actually able to parlay that mistake into an incredible number of outings and um, and people who thought it was a, a great act of sportsmanship that I didn't, you know, complain afterwards or anything like that. And he said, and then, you know, right after that, they gave me the Bobby Jones Award, right. which is the highest award you can get in golf from the United States Golf Association for being a great sport on the golf course and a great person off of the golf course. And so that's the best award you can win. And uh, which is funny, of course, because Bobby Jones, when he was a teenager, used to be a club thrower. And the USGA <laughs> wrote him a note and said, if you want to play in any more of our events, you'll get it together. And of course, he did more than get it together. He became, you know, the the, the one that we look up to is, you know, always being the most honest and calling a penalty on himself and, you know, have great sportsmanship, whether he won or whether he lost. And mostly he won. 
But Roberto, you know, was thrilled to get that award, which he felt he wouldn't have gotten had he not signed the incorrect card. And he became famous for saying what a stupid I am and got incredible numbers of speaking and clinic um, invitations as a result of that. Right. And, And he also said, you know, maybe I lost the prestige by not winning the Masters, but my name is in the Masters forever. So there's well, something I, to that. Well, that, there's a lot to that, Warren. That, that that's that's an important piece of the puzzle. You know, he, you know, he he is certainly a part of Masters lore, and you know, you can be sure that will come up, you know, um, on 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 shows and podcasts and 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 and, uh, and all kinds of you know television stuff and 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 uh, and web platforms. You know, people are going to talk about it a lot that week, and it's funny because. You know, people don't know that much about Roberto. They know about the scorecard, and they don't, you know, the guy won 231 tournaments. He had 490 top fives. Wow. Now, he played all of his golf, really almost all of his golf in South America and Argentina, where he was the best player. And um, Gary Player told me that um, Roberto was, and so did Jack, was a wonderful ball striker. Um, and Roberto told me that his swing key was that he felt like he hit it with his stomach, that it was his turn back through the ball with the big muscles that he felt is what, you know, helped the successful collision of the ball, the club and the ground mm. at the bottom. And, you know, now Roberto, you know, came from a very poor family just outside of Buenos Aires. And he was born in 1923. And in 1938, when he was 15, he turned pro. Now this is you're just talking about the just before the beginning of World War II, and he would win a tournament a couple of years later. He would win the first of the Argentine Opens. I think he won six or nine of them, uh, an astounding amount. And he won the Open Championships of almost a dozen other countries during the course of his career. But incredible, you know he didn't play a lot on the European tour where I think he won nine times and he didn't play a lot on the PGA tour where I think he won eight times, but right. you know, he won the, the senior PGA and in 1980, you know, when they had the first U S senior open and he was in his late fifties at that time, he won that. And Arnold right. was eligible for that one in 1980 because he had just turned 50 the year before. And so, and then Arnold of course won right after that and Billy Casper won right after that. But Roberto actually won it in 1980, and he was in the foursome of guys at the uh, Liberty Mutual uh, Legends Tournament with Tommy Bolt and uh, and Roberto and Julius Burroughs and Art Wall, and Julius and DiVincenzo were partners, and Art Wall and Tommy Bolt were partners. And it's interesting because that was in November in either 78 or 79. And it just so happened that that weekend, there wasn't really very much else sports-wise on television. And so a lot of people tuned in to watch these old guys. You know, Tommy was born in 1916. So, you know, in 1980, you know, he was in his mid-60s. And all those guys were. But they went to a playoff, and there were six birdies made in a row. Wow. And Julius and Julius and and Roberto were the ones who made the sixth because Art Wall and Tommy birdied the first five to match them, and that's really what started the senior tour. And so Roberto was really in the right place at the right time. And it's funny, I had uh, E. Harvey Ward once on at the Golf Channel, Warren, and. 
we we sat down and Harvey was a great amateur, especially in the 1950s and finished second in a few major tournaments to Ben Hogan. He was a super player and and Harvey sat down with me in the dark and I'm guessing he wasn't completely familiar with how well I was prepared for shows. And so the room went dark and it was about 10 seconds before the light goes on for us to start the show. And Harvey leans into me and he said, don't forget to ask me about winning the 1980 U.S. Senior Open. And I leaned into him and I said, Roberto <laughs> DiVincenzo won the 1980 U.S. Senior <laughs> Open. And then he leaned into me and he said, oh, yeah, I forgot. <laughs> and I can assure you that he was on his best behavior for the rest of the show. Because once I had busted him and he knew that I knew my stuff, he, he, he played it right down the middle. And it's funny because... You know, you're friendly with the who the guy who was a producer of the show, Lee Siegel. And actually, I spoke to Lee just before just before you rang through for us to chat. And and Lee and I talk about that all the time. Every <laughs> once in a while, Lee says, "You remember when E. Harvey Ward tried to get the better of you guys? I remember it very, very well." So <laughs> that was, you know, an indirect Roberto story. But you know, Jack Nicklaus at the 1957 U.S. Open went to watch Roberto hit some shots and talked about like crawling between people's legs so he could get a better view of him on the tee. And Jack said that he remembered one shot where he, he was lying down and looking between people's legs and Roberto took out a three wood and, and sort of slapped the ground, to raise the turf and put the ball on the top of the raised turf as a lot of the old timers would do. Trevino used to do a bit of that and he played the three wood from there and, and Nicholas was totally enthralled by the whole thing. But, you know, in 67, Roberto won the Open Championship. Right. And uh, he won it over Jack Nicholas and Gary Player. And, you know, and he wasn't a young man then. See, Roberto born in 23, so he's 40. So he was in his late 40s at that time. And so if he had won the Masters in 68, he would have actually been holding two major championship titles at the same time, the 67 open championship and the 68 masters tournament. So, you know, so he, you know, so clearly he was a super duper player and he could compete against the best players in the world, you know, and when he did beat Jack and Gary in 67, Jack and Gary were Jack and Gary in 67. I mean, they were in, you know, full flight at that point. So, you know, Roberto could have, had he chosen to spend more time in the U.S., which he chose not to do, could have made a much bigger impression on the world of golf because he could have won many more times here, as evidenced by being somebody who picked up a major and, and had a chance to go up into a playoff in another. Right. And I want to talk about the playoff because I, I think we need to clear this one thing up. While the error was epic, and I don't think that's an understatement, I do think we need to clear up the fact that he actually did not have the green jacket won as most would have you believe. Had he not signed an incorrect scorecard, he would have finished at 11 under, and that's the same score as Bob Goldie. So there would have been a playoff, but stories get lost, forgotten, exaggerated. So is it fair that we say, is it fair to say that he actually lost the green jacket as opposed to saying he had a great chance to win it? Yeah, it's definitely the latter. I mean, you're right on the money as always. Yes, I mean, 
you know, it would have given them the opportunity to fall into what would have in that year been an 18 hole playoff. Remember there was one, two years later where Casper beat his boyhood friend, Gene Littler, and that was an 18 hole playoff. And, um, you know, and that was an, that was a particularly exciting weekend. So, you know, now it's sudden death, but then it was 18 holes, hmm. you know, and Bob Goby felt a little bit cheated that, you know, he would have liked to have played the playoff because first of all, he knew that he was tied. He knew he couldn't do anything about the rule. And that's why Bob was able to live with this because he knew that there was nothing that he could do to get Roberto into the playoff. And a lot of people, especially have taken me on in social media saying, you know, Roberto should have demanded it and he should have refused to leave until they had a playoff. And I said, there wasn't anything for him to demand. The rules of golf were clear. Bobby Jones was just a couple of years from, from passing away, which he did in December of 71. So this is April of 68. And so he was, he was in pretty rough shape at that point. And he had been confined to a wheelchair and to his bed for many years at that point. And, and Jones sat in this cabin on the 10th bordering the 10th hole and everybody came in and, you know, and Jones said, we got to figure a way out of this. We got to figure out a way for Roberto to get into the playoff, hmm. you know, and they all sat there and finally Jones said, there's just no way around this rule. And we're going to have to award the jacket to Bob Golby. But Bob knew that there wasn't anything that Bob could have done or insisted upon or become indignant about or anything like that. It was completely out of his hands. And that's why he was able to live with it so well, despite the fact that over the years he got a lot of hate mail, you know, people said, you know, you should have insisted on a playoff. And, you know, he took a lot of grief for it over the years, but he was able to pretty quickly settle into the fact that he did what he needed to do. He couldn't do anything about Roberto in the card. He couldn't do anything about breaking the rules of golf to getting Roberto into the playoff. And so, you know, so, so it's, it's something that's been able to set with them fairly easily over the years. And, you know, and Goldie's, you know, pretty old these days and he's just the loveliest, sweetest guy, you know, so much about, golf and you know he played hundreds of times with Sam Snead and he actually played with Hogan in 70 when Hogan finally during a round said I can't go any further mm. they got to mm. they were at a tournament and they got to the 10th hole and Goldie and Hogan are playing together and Hogan kind of slipped hitting an iron to a par three and he put it in the water or a hazard and he reloaded and it was another unsuccessful shot. He looked at Bob and he said, I can't go anymore. Mm. And uh, so, you know, Gobi was right there for a lot of pivotal stuff. And of course he played in the heyday of Arnold and Jack and Gary, right. and, you know, and just missed the Seve era by a tiny little bit. But, you know, Bob was a wonderful player and just an absolute delight of a guy with a great sense of humor. And there was no guilt, and, and rightly so, because signing a scorecard, reviewing your scorecard is a part of the game. It's not an extra part of the game. It's a part of the game. But That's right. here, here, it's sort of a strange rule, though. If you sign a scorecard that essentially betters your score, you're disqualified. If you sign a scorecard for a score that gives you a worse score, a score that's worse than you actually carded, then that's your score. And the yes. fact that you're not the one technically keeping the score for yourself, I think makes this even somewhat of a 
a cloudier rule, if, if, if that's the proper terminology. What do you think, and has there ever been any consideration to reworking the penalty of that rule? Well, they, they, they definitely should, and I'm sure it's been talked about because it's really antiquated at this point. You know, this business with the exchanging the scorecards and the penalties for signing higher or lower, you know, this this goes back 100 years. And, you know, we didn't have the scoreboards and you didn't, you know, you didn't have all of the the, the instant information to keep track of things. You did have a standard bearer in major championships who kept the score, but you know, they, they could make a mistake. There wasn't, you know, it, it wasn't as tightly run as it, as it could be. So the scorecard itself became really sacrosanct because it was the only way a guy could protect himself after the round. And absolutely it was not an additional part. It was an intrinsic part of playing a round of golf. I think it's not necessary anymore. I mean, the whole world can see on TV if you've made a birdie and then signed for a par, right. and you shouldn't get penalized for it because the guy who kept your score put the wrong number down and you didn't pick up on it. And, of course, Dave Marr said about Tommy Aaron, who put the wrong score down for DiVincenzo, he said, who would you like to least, ha- who would you least like to have do your taxes next year? <laughs> What about Tommy Aaron? I mean, you're right. He's the guy who wrote down the incorrect score. You said that 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 Golby got over or didn't feel guilty because of how he ended up winning the green jacket. But what about Tommy Aaron? What was his reaction, and what did he have to say? Oh, you know, he you know he was humiliated. I mean, you know, if if it had been Golby who had kept DiVincenzo's card and Golby who had written down the wrong number. And then DiVincenzo signs it. Golby would have never heard the end of it, of course, you know, and somebody would have said you did it on purpose and you knew he didn't really look at his scorecards. He would have taken, you know, a raft of grief, but as it was, you know, the jokes were all on Tommy Aaron, including the least likely to do your taxes for you routine next year by Dave Marr. And, (laughs) you know, Tommy was sick about it. And if you look at pictures from that afternoon, the one who looks the least happy is Tommy Aaron sitting there. Goby looks complacent and understanding as to what's going on, not ruffled. DiVincenzo has his face in his hand. And Tommy Aaron is totally slumped in the chair like, oh, my God, I cannot believe I did this. So that 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 would have stayed with him forever and ever and ever, just like Greg Norman not winning a U.S. major is sticking with him forever and ever. Many years ago, Greg called me, and he was supposed to give a speech on a Thursday to some people down in Jupiter, and he hadn't written the speech. So he called me up two days before, and he said, I don't want to write this speech. Will you come down and just interview me, and then I don't have to get prepared? So I said, sure. So he said, we'll come down um, in the morning, and uh, and we'll, we'll we'll go ahead and play uh, eighteen holes of golf, and then we'll go uh, uh, do do the speech and have dinner and stuff. And so we're playing, and we're on the last hole. And I said to him, "So, how many times have you woken up in the middle of the night and gone? I can't believe I didn't win a major in the United States." And he looked at me and he went. Never once have I ever woken up in the middle of the night and thought that. 
Hmm. And I gave him, I gave him some look. And then he just started laughing and threw his hands up and said, okay, okay, okay. Meanwhile, it flustered him enough. I won the last hole in the match and he signed the $20 bill. <laughs> Great story. Which I, which I have lost that $20 bill. And I, I stuck it in the book and my 30-year-old son or my son will be 30 next week it has gotten into golf history. The only other person I know who's interested in, and he stole half my book. So somewhere that Greg Norman <laughs> 20 is floating around. Great story. Hey, uh, still going back to the 68 Masters, I do want to talk about Roberto's career outside of the Masters. But going back to that day, even more amazing was the fact that the final round in 1968 fell on Roberto's birthday, and he started the day with an eagle. What a great way to start your birthday. Man, what a horrible way to finish it. You know, it's funny. The uh, Yes, he started with a two on number one, which is, in my view, the hardest green to putt on the golf course, either number one, number five, or number 14. Uh, those are the three hardest greens, but I think number one is the hardest green that I've ever putted on that I can think of. It's got these like, it's got these like little coffin-shaped humps in the green, and it's 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 the width, it's the width of a, a coffin, and it's the length of a coffin, but it's like say half the height, and there's a ramp up on all four sides to get onto the coffin, and they will put the pins on the top of these coffin-shaped things. So just think of it. You know, if it's only six feet long and it's three feet wide, you know, and you're 30 feet away, you've got to roll it up the incline and stop it on the top. It can't, hmm. you can't push it slightly because it'll fall off to the right or pull it because it'll go off to the left or hit it an ounce too hard because it'll go over the top of the coffin the other side and you got to put up to the coffin again. So making a two there is so unlikely. I mean, you know, the, you know, it's the same odds as really a hole in one to hold an iron shot on a par four. The same is the same odds probably as making a hole in one on a par three. Right. But you know, it's, you know, it's really funny. I I've thought about that and you know how sometimes you're, you're watching a football game and some team takes a, an early lead and capitalizes on a few really happy mistakes by the other team and looks like it's going to be a blowout. And you say to yourself, well, just, just hang on a second. Nothing ever goes quite that smoothly. And of course, you know, the quintessential example is, you know, the Patriots beating Atlanta two years ago, right. in the Super Bowl. I was just thinking, I was, I was actually just thinking about that as you were saying that. Yeah. 28, 28, three lead. And you think the whole thing is over and some really intelligent, uh, college student, you know, wrote to uh, Jeannie Bouchard, the gorgeous Canadian tennis player, and after she said the game's over, and he said, I'll, "He said I'll bet you for a date that New England comes back." <laughs> and now they actually see each other. He did more than just get the yeah. date. I think he, yeah. I think he got her. Yes, he did. And uh, yeah, so yeah, you know, I've seen a picture of them lying on a couch and stuff, and they looked awfully cozy. <laughs> and, uh, and I've seen pictures of them on the beach, and they looked awfully cozy. And so, uh, yeah, it was just one of those things, you know, sometimes you get off to such a super duper start and then things don't work out. And there've been so many great rounds in history where a guy bogeys the first hole and then ends up shooting lights out. So it was just one of those curious things that it would start off so well 
And, uh, you know, but he ends up shooting 65 with the bogey on 18. And again, he said, that's all I could see was the five on 18. I, nothing else. I saw nothing else. He might've been playing some of the best golf of his life at that point of his career. He was the defending champion of the British open. Like you said, how did this affect his career afterwards? Did it? Not really, because, you know, you know, now he never he never came close to winning another major, you know, but I don't think it was one of those things where he would get into position and then think something was going to go wrong. I, you know, he he was good enough to win a major. He was good enough to, you know, almost get into the playoff for the for the Masters. You know, he did win the open championships of a great number of countries and a zillion times in Argentina and did win 231 tournaments. So he knew how to close out events. Um, but you know, the masters is about as high profile as you can get, but there isn't really a big drop off in quality or number of wins, even though at that point, you know, he was almost 50 years old because he was born in 1923. So by 73, he's 50. So, you know, in 68, that was his 45th birthday, of course, on the Sunday, as you mentioned. And um, so, you know, to be playing, you know, some pretty stout golf at that age doesn't happen a lot. Jack won the Masters at 46, and Julius Burrow won a PGA at 48, and Sneed won on tour at 52, and Watson and Norman almost won Open Championships Watson at 59 and 60. Yeah. And, uh, you know, so... And uh, and I was there for the Watson uh, thing at Carnoustie, and it was the unluckiest thing because, you know, the pin was all the way back, and he had a one-shot lead, and he thought if he killed the nine iron, it'd probably only get him on the front of the green. And then he's got 70 feet, and you can three-putt that pretty easily. So he decides to hit the eight, and the ball landed about four feet onto the green, which is exactly what he had in mind, and he was just going to let it run the next 50 feet. And there was a tiny little ridge right at the beginning of the green, about mm. two feet into the green, mm. a ridge that ran from right to left. And so the, you know, so it was a little hill in the front and a little hill going downhill in the back. And it hit the downhill portion in the back of that tiny little hump. And it just gave it just enough energy that the crowd was going louder and louder and louder and louder. And then all of a sudden it turned into a groan. And then Watson realized it had gone over the back. And Watson had said many times in his books and in his interviews, said, you know, if you're just over the back of the green, he said, if you take putter, he said, you know, you're going to have 10 feet, but it's going to be 10 feet. And that's a lot. He said the risk of taking the wedge is that you don't hit it firm enough to get it up on the plateau. And he said, and then certainly you've got problems. Mm -hmm. He said, but if you're trying to get it up and down, you rely on your chipping game. And, you know, Watson was famous for his chipping. He's one of the great chippers of all time. He won the United States Open in 82 by chipping in on the 71st hole. And then, of course, he birdied 18 as well to deny Jack his Mm -hmm. U.S. Open and which would have been his second at Pebble Beach. And uh, so, you know, Watson's chipping was really the best part of his game, but he had putted beautifully all week, and then he hit the putt 10 feet by the hole, which every single player in the world would have done. You're going to make sure you hit it hard enough to get it up the hill, 
and it's really hard to hit it, you know, soft enough to have it then die at the pin. So he knew he was going to have a putt, and then of course he decelled and pushed it to the right, and and got swamped in the playoff by Stewart Sink, the most unpopular right. victory in the history of the <laughs> Open Championship. Right. And uh, and I talked to Tom right after, and he said, "Man, I played so good until I turned into Sam Sausage in the playoff." Wow. Awesome, awesome story, and awesome that you were there. Hey, let's let's talk about Roberto, the golfer, outside of the Masters. Like we said earlier, he was the defending champion of the British Open, something that I think gets overlooked because of what happened at the Masters. What can you tell us about the 67 British Open? He finished two ahead of Gary. He was three ahead of Nicholas. And a few other side notes about that Open. I think it was the last one played in which a second cut was made after 54 holes. And it was the last time that the final round of the Open was played the week prior to the PGA Championship, making it just about virtually impossible for someone to win those two majors in the same year. Tell us what you can about the 67 British Open. Well, I can tell you from Jack and Gary's point of view, because I discussed it, you know, in pretty great depth. You know, both their views were that Roberto T. De Green was as good a player in the game at that time but he was just an okay putter. But he hit so many balls close to the hole, generally speaking, that you know there was rarely a three-putt, and he was going to shake in a reasonable number of the 10 and 12 and 15-footers that he had for birdies. Otherwise, you know, win 231 times. But he was like Jack in the sense that he didn't miss a lot of greens. You know, I remember talking to Jack once, and I said to him, so how many greens would you hit in a round? And he said, mm, 16. And he said, and I didn't really work on my chipping. He said, because I knew I could chip to 10 feet. And he said, and obviously I was going to make all my 10 footers, which I thought was a great line. And he, he and Weisskopf both told me the same story about they were playing in the Ryder cup and they were partners and it was best ball. And it was the first hole of the match and Jack hits it to 15 feet under the hole, and Weisskopf hits it to 12 feet under the hole. And Weisskopf says to Jack, w- which way do you want me to move my mark? And Jack said, just pick it up. And Tom said, what do you mean? And Jack said, just, just pick it up. Just rack your cue. He said, you're not going to need to putt. And Tom said, what are you talking about? And Jack said, there's absolutely no chance on this earth that I'm not going to make this putt straight up the hill from 15 feet. <laughs> And Weisskopf said, seriously? And Jack said, yeah, seriously. He said, get out of the way. And then Jack knocked in the putt, and just Tom was in awe. And uh, But, you know, Roberto wasn't a putter nearly as good as Gary Player, or he would have won more majors, and not nearly as good as Jack, or he would have won more majors. So it was his inability in the 15 to 25-feet range to convert as many as you need to to, to close out tournaments and, and majors um, to go ahead and beat the very best players in the world on a regular basis, but he could beat up everybody in South America and Argentina with no problem. He could have given everybody in the field shots and uh, and, and still won the tournament. So Tita Green, he was just supposed to be absolutely magnificent. You know, he he believed in exercise of hitting balls 
to be fit. You know, a lot of players did. Tom Watson did that too. You know, Watson felt like I'm going to hit balls when Gary Player, before Gary Player started to work out seriously, he just hit ball after ball after ball. And yeah, I saw where he hit. I, I saw where he hit something like 400 balls a day. Yeah, DiVincenzo. That's the number that he told me too, actually. So, so that that jives with your research. Yeah, Roberto told me that he would hit 400 balls a day, and he really did it until oh 95 or six. So, you know, he would have been in his early 70s at that point, and uh, um, and then then he then he slowed down a little bit. But he did a lot of teaching, and he worked with a lot of the younger players in Argentina, and was you know, one of the really revered, you know, not only sportsmen, you know, maybe the, the, the best sportsman of Argentina, certainly at the, over his time period, but, you know, really seen as a seminal figure, um, in terms of popularity and hero worship and, and how much he was beloved. Uh, you know, he didn't bring personal problems or baggage. Mm-hmm. Or he was always in, he was always fit. But yeah, 400 balls a day is what he told me, and and a couple other sources had passed that along. And uh, but Nicholas and Gary said Tita Green guy was just unreal. He said he said if there was going to be a lot of chipping and putting, like at a U.S. Open, he said he was a little less adept at that. He was just, but he was always hitting 16 greens around. So, like Jack in his prime, he didn't need much of a short game because he could, you know, get it up and down. Right. And if he didn't, it was two bogeys against the seven birdies on the 16 greens that he would hit. So, <laughs> and apparently he hit a lot of shots really close to the hole. And in 67, the greens weren't real fast. That's the other thing to remember is that a lot of guys who win an open championship could have only won an open championship because they weren't great on fast greens. And of course, in Great Britain, the speed of the greens for majors is pretty much the speed if you and I went out there tomorrow, because there's a certain point at which, because all those platforms are exposed to the wind, the sea air, that the ball can start rolling. And if you remember just a few years ago when uh, 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 Zach Johnson won at the old course, you know, that uh, DJ had to pick up at one point and go back out to 14, and um, and Spieth had some issues at 14. I think his ball had moved, and they stopped play for a couple hours because right. they got the green shaved a little too quick, and then he came back and three-jacked it. But uh, so the greens are slower, and so everybody's going to be able to roll the ball up to the hole knowing it will stop when it gets there. And for a player like Roberto... Uh, those were good good green speeds, and of course the green speeds that you can imagine in the 40s, 50s, and 60s in Argentina and South America were going to be slower and less consistent and thatchier, and where guys weren't making a ton of putts, so the guy who was best tee to green was going to be your winner. Hmm. You know, I was going to ask you about Roberto's strengths and weaknesses, but uh, you just took me through them, so I want to ask you this. Um, a little bit off topic here, the British Open, why was there a cut after 54 holes? What was the theory behind it, and why did the RNA abandon the rule? Well, that went back uh, quite a long ways, actually. Now, 
from nineteen from eighteen sixty to eighteen ninety two the open championship was only held at thirty six holes so it wasn't until ninety two that they went to seventy two holes and that's when j h Taylor and Harry Varden, who won his first open championship in ninety six in a playoff over j h Taylor at Muirfield by the way um by then it was seventy two holes and they did institute double cuts that lasted for a very long time. And uh, I, I think that at one time the fields were large enough that they were looking for ways to winnow it down on the last day. And that's where the 54 hole thing came from to just get to make sure the guys get around. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, it was a curious rule. You know, the only time we have 54-hole cuts is if there's a pro-am like at Pebble Beach or something. Right. You know, very rarely do you, on the tour do you see a, a, a secondary cut these days. But uh, it was good that they got rid of it because, you know, if you've made the first cut and you play on the third day, you know, if the weather is crazy, you can have a turnaround. I mean, you know, look at the tournament that Vandeveld lost at Carnoustie when he had you know, an 8 million shot lead over, uh, well, the other two guys who were in the playoff with him, Paul Laurie was like 10 shots back and Justin Leonard was a million shots back. So, you know, I think they got rid of that because they realized somebody could, if you would let them play the last day, come from behind. What was it about Roberto's game? And I don't know if this is a fair statement, but when you look at the stats, one would think that, he reached the apex of his game at such a late age yeah. for a golfer in his mid-40s. What was it about his game that allowed him to reach that apex at such an older age? Well, he was a really great athlete, first of all. I mean, he was a great athlete. He was in great shape. He didn't have a drinking problem. He didn't have running around issues. He was a pretty straight, straightforward guy. And he didn't travel much, you know. He, he the wear and tear on him was not like it was on Gary Player, even though you never knew it on Gary Player, and you still don't know it today. But you know Gary Player just he was always on an airplane. I mean, he told me that in the early '60s when he used to come up here from South Africa, it was six flights and it was forty hours. And he, wow. at one point, one point he's got six kids on the planes. And those were the days where the diapers weren't disposable, so you were washing them and <laughs> washing them in the in the bathroom, and you know it was a real it was a real scene. But Roberto, Roberto took it very easy on himself. You know, out of his 231 wins, I think 200 were in South America, so he didn't do a lot of traveling far from home, and so you know, very very little wear and tear, stayed in good shape. Uh, really good distance, fabulous long iron player. Um, his short game was rarely tested because he hit so many greens. But so, you know, really his longevity in many ways was due to genes, his athleticism, and the fact that as many tournaments as he played in with 490 top fives, it was always like around the corner from his house kind of thing, you know? So mm. he, so he, you know, so he, there wasn't a lot of wear and tear on that body. And so, you know, a lot of guys, you know, there's, there's a few guys like that. I mean, you know, obviously you look at a Bernhard Longer who's longer at 60 than he was at 30. 
and just plays Sam's, a great game still. And Sam Snead, you know, of course, won on the tour when he was 52. He almost won the LA Open when he was 62. I happened to actually be there that week and watched him hit balls for six straight nights, and I was the only person watching. Wow. In those days, nobody went to golf tournaments. I had told this to Tiger one day. I told him that in 1974, at the LA Open, that Dave Stockton won on the last hole with a three wood from the left rough from 230 to eight feet to beat Snead by two shots because Snead ended up making a bogey, even though he outdrove Dave by 80 yards on the final hole. 62 year old Sam Snead, every night starting on the previous Monday, hit balls at the range. I watched him Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, and Saturday. And he didn't hit balls Sunday night, of course, because the tournament was over. And I was the only one there. And I sat 10 feet behind him, and I watched him hit balls for 90 minutes every night. And I knew who Sam Snead was, and I had already been in golf history in a big way since I was a teenager. So I knew a lot about him. And we talked on the range, and uh, it was fantastic. And and two years before, um, in 72, when Jack... I had a chance to get the grand slam because he got the first two legs and then lost at Muirfield, the Trevino's chip in, but Jack actually bogeyed 16 and parred 17. Otherwise he could have won that tournament. But in 72, when they used to have the tournament of champions at La Costa, I was going to school in San Diego and I would just drive up a few minutes to La Costa where I was a member, which cost $500 to join and $10 a month dues. <laughs> and you could walk with Jack on Tuesday, right down the middle of every fairway during his practice round, there wasn't a soul Incredible. there. I spent at least two or three years walking with Jack, 18 holes. He would let you hit a chip. He'd let you throw his balls back to him if he was going to hit extra shots. You could talk to him the whole time. And then Man. we'd finish the round. And he would go to the range. And in those days, guys had the caddies had baseball gloves that they caught the balls in and then would catch them on a bounce and put them in the shag bag. So I'm sitting with three other guys. Now it's a big crowd sitting behind Jack, four people. And he's hitting seven irons to his caddy, Angelo Argia, who was 150 yards out. And the guy <laughs> next to me says loud enough for Jack to hear. He goes, well, I can hit my seven iron that far. So Jack gave one wave to Angelo, and a single wave meant go back 10 yards. So he waved him back 10 yards and hit the 7-iron, and he waved him back 10 yards and hit the 7-iron, and then he did it two more times until he got to 190 and was still hitting 7-iron. And then he turned around to the guy next to me, and he said, I can hit it as far as I want. I choose to hit it 150. Nobody there. It was wow. the unbelievable thing. If you and I went there together... And we split up on the first tee and said, okay, I'll meet you in two hours on 10. We'd run into each other 15 times before we had to meet again. Nobody there. It was the craziest Crazy. thing. And when I told Tiger that, he just like couldn't believe. When I told him, I just walked right down the middle of the fairway with Jack during a practice round when he was the best player in the world playing his best golf. He just was totally blown away. And I said to him, I said, that just gives you another example of how incredible it was when things became out of control for you, Tiger, because of your popularity, because you transcended the game for a number of reasons. Jack didn't transcend the game. He was the game. I said, but people didn't, 
to have that same need to be there that they have with you. And he just couldn't believe the, you know, he said, you sat every night with Sam Snead alone. I said, every night, six nights in a row, I sat with him on the range for 90 minutes. And one night he only hit pitching wedges. And I said to him, why are you only hitting pitching wedges? And he said, it's the best club to practice with. He said, because you're not making a real hard swing, but you're still making a swing. And he said, and it's a little slower, so you can kind of work on the synchronization of the body parts and make sure you're picking up speed where you want to, where if you're hitting driver, it's harder to do. He said, so if I can only hit one club, it would be my pitching wedge if I could only practice one club. And um, we didn't, you know, people didn't talk lofts in those days, but I figured out later that his pitching wedge was probably 52 degrees at that point. You know what, Peter? I got to spend a week with Sam Snead doing a video with him at the homestead. And his pitching wedge at that time was basically illegal. He wore out the sweet spot of that pitching wedge. It had like this impression in it. It was like the size of a of a dime because he hit the ball perfect in the center, in the sweet spot every time. Never seen anything like it. And my quick Sam Sneed story, I ate at Sam Sneed's Tavern with Sam Sneed. And when I went to go order my food, I ordered fish and he jabs me in the side and he says, where's the closest ocean? I go a couple hours that way. He said, there's nothing fresh about that fish. Here, you eat the steak. Yeah, it's funny. I, I wonder if that wasn't the same night that uh, and in 95 when he was on the show with me and we drove over in a limousine to Sam Sneed's Tavern and it was me and Sam. I think, I'm thinking you were there that night and, um, and, and my son who was then seven. And so then he says to me, what kind of food do they have at Sam Sneed's? I said, it's your restaurant. And he said, and he goes, do they have chili? And I said, yeah, of course you have chili. He said, but I don't like it with beans. I said, there's no beans in Sam Sneed's chili. I said, Sam Sneed's Tavern, what's the matter with you? And uh, there was, I'm trying to think, there was this young girl who worked there, Susan with blonde hair. And he sat next to her and he put his straw hat on her head. And he said to her, are you married? And she said, no. And he said, well, I'm looking. And he was probably 85 <laughs> at the time. I'm looking. <laughs> great guy. He was a great guy. Hey, we got to uh, we got to look to wrap things up here. Roberto Divisenzo. Yes, sir. On a personal level, off the golf course, you've spoken with him. What kind of guy was he? Oh, uh, he was a he was a total he was a total sweetheart. He um, was nice. He was relaxed. He was happy to talk. He told me he had seen my shows and sometimes needed a translator, uh, but that he really enjoyed he really enjoyed those shows and he liked the instructional stuff. And that's when he told me that he felt like he hit the golf ball with his stomach. And he said, you know, if I spoke better English, I would do the show with you. And I said, oh, I said, you know, we 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 would love that. And um, and then we never did we never did get it together. And but he was uh, he was very comfortable in his own skin. I reminded mm-hmm. me a little bit, I know this is way off the beaten path, but reminded me of, I, I spent a couple of weeks with Sean Connery on 
two occasions playing golf almost every day. And, and I thought that he was the most comfortable person in his own skin that I had ever met with. Certainly Nicholas would be up there too. And Mm -hmm. Arnold, Arnold would be there, but Roberto was very comfortable in his own skin. He was very, very relaxed. Uh, he was happy to talk to me. He knew who I was. He had respect for me. So he's willing to talk. And, um, and no, it was, it was just a, it was lovely. It was a little, a little bit like talking to Billy Casper. He's happy to be there. A little bit of an emotional guy could talk about anything. Uh, was totally open about, you know, that he made more money by losing the tournament than he would have won by winning the tournament. And, um, yeah, he was just an interpersonal delight, really, Warren. Awesome. You know, so many times a particular event can define a person's career. And in this case, Roberto's career, I think, is defined by what happened to him at Augusta in 1968. Is that fair? Well, no, because it's not the only thing that ever happened to him. I mean, you know, that that was the big disaster. But, you know, there were 231 other victories, including the previous year's Open. You know, and he would win the U.S. Senior Open um, in 1980, the first time it was played. And he won a PGA Seniors event, I think, in 74. Um, So, you know, he continued to have success. You know, if you look at Tony Jacklin, for example, when Jacqueline lost the 72 Open to Lee Trevino's chip in on 17, followed by his three putt to lose it, that that absolutely destroyed Tony. And Tony was never the same player again. He acknowledged it. He said after that, he said, I he said, I, that was it. I, I couldn't do it anymore. I lost my confidence. But Roberto wasn't like wasn't like that. It wasn't. It may have been a a critical moment in his career, but I don't think it accurately defines him because it wasn't the last thing that happened. I mean, he then won the PGA seniors. He won, then won the 1980 U S senior open, you know, beating, beating Billy Casper and beating, you know, Arnold Palmer and, uh, Lee would not have been old enough yet, quite yet to, to be in that, uh, a 1980 U.S. Senior Open, but you know he, he beat a, you know everybody who was there, everybody who showed up, he beat. So I think it was you know it's his most famous moment, it's his most regrettable moment, but I think you have to say in terms of the overall accomplishments of Roberto DiVincenzo, that was just one of the unfortunate data points on the graph a graph that was filled with so many successful ones. And so successful that he was inducted into the World Golf Hall of Fame. Hey, Peter, I want to thank you so much for joining me on Sports Forgotten Heroes. Tell us about maybe some of the things that you're working on right now. Well, I'm writing a book when I when I can put my chair, my, my, my fanny in the chair and grind it out. I did some writing today. You know, I spent time with every great player who was alive of the last century, and I have a lot of stories um, on the golf course, off the golf course. I knew Payne Stewart very well and Tommy Bolt very well, and Arnold was like a dad to me for several years, and I was close with Jack. I was close with Tiger. I, you know, was the only media person that I'm aware of that Tiger was ever comfortable dealing with. I've never seen him give a comfortable interview since then or one where he wasn't working hard to try to pretend that it was comfortable. 
And, uh, you know, I know I never went back to the golf channel after I left. And so I'm hoping to do something with him down the road again. So the, 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 the book I'm working on, and I'm working on a project that could put me back on camera again, um, doing the stuff that I used to do, doing some interviews, doing some instructional show hosting. And, uh, so I'm working on that, and if that comes to fruition, uh, I'm going to get a couple of the guys from the old days at the Golf Channel to do it with me and uh, see if we can tee it up again. Awesome, Peter. We would all really look forward to it. want to thank you again for being here, and I hope you'd consider coming back on. Uh, come on anytime you want me to come on, and you can also call me if somebody cancels last minute. You know, I'm happy to do an emergency show at any time. I'm not proud. And, uh, you know, I've known you and I have known each other for over 20 years and, uh, and you've been a good friend and, and, uh, I've been an admirer of your work and all of the places that you've been. And I'm familiar with all of your career. And, uh, so anytime you want, we're, we're friends, we're old friends. We have a, a mutual degree of respect for each other. And so I would, I would, I would never hesitate to join you again, my friend. And I wish you all good things with the show. And I think you did a great job, uh, with your questions tonight and, you know, you certainly got me telling stories and that's, you know, that's the trick of a good host. And so you nailed that and it was really good stuff and it was interesting for me. So congratulations. Great job. Thanks, Peter. Pleasure. So for his career, DiVincenzo won, as we have said a few times, 231 tournaments over a career that started in 1938 and ended in 2006. That included eight wins on the PGA Tour nine wins on the European Tour, 131 wins on the Argentine Tour, 62 wins on the South American Tour, two wins on the Senior PGA Tour, and 19 wins combined on several other tours and tournaments. He was inducted into the World Golf Hall of Fame in 1989, won the Bobby Jones Award in 1970, and that's the highest honor given by the USGA for sportsmanship to go along with a few other awards in recognition. Roberto's career was filled with so many wonderful highlights, victories, and he was a pleasure to play golf with. But it was that one day, April 14, 1968, that most everyone remembers or is most familiar with, Again, fairly or not, that scoring gaffe is the legacy of a truly great golfer, Roberto DiVincenzo. Next time on Sports Forgotten Heroes, we're going to take a look back at the career of a terrific pitcher who played twice for the New York Yankees, and in between, he played for the St. Louis Browns. A guy who just fell short of 200 wins. A guy who struggled with his health and passed away towards the end of his career. The story of one of baseball's forgotten heroes, Urban Shocker. Thanks again to today's guest, Peter Kessler, and we'll see you next time on Sports Forgotten Heroes.